Yes. Good. Okay. Well, what I said I would talk about is, is uh, what Alan Turing might have discovered. Um, and uh, I happen to have spent a large part of my life uh, trying to figure out what sort of the implications of the big idea of computation are. And uh, I've uh, ended up sort of taking some of the ideas that I think Alan Turing pioneered and uh, trying to see just how far those ideas can be taken. So uh, I've mostly worked on three big things, Mathematica, Wolfram Alpha, and a new kind of science. And with Mathematica, I suppose in a sense, I was in, a, in some sense trying to finish what Alan Turing, following others, had started, which was to see how one can mechanize, make computational the process of doing mathematics. Um, and that's something where, uh, in, in building Mathematica, sort of my, my concept was to, um, uh, to have these kinds of uh, uh, lumps of essentially mathematical or computational work be represented by this language in Mathematica and to try and do, to try and cover, as, as Turing had tried to cover with his Turing machine, uh, kind of um, uh, the, the uh, make, make mechanical uh, the process of doing mathematics. That's been sort of my goal over the last 25 years with, with building Mathematica. One of the things that, uh, one of the reasons that I built Mathematica was because I wanted to use it to kind of explore this kind of notion of computation uh, in a broader way. And I suppose I got into that uh, through thinking about natural science, not really through thinking about mathematics, but through thinking about natural science. And kind of the origin of my uh, uh, work had to do with the following question. So we look at the natural world, and uh, we know that there are certain uh, uh, scientific methods that allow us to explain things about the natural world, and particularly the sort of the leading paradigm for the last 300 years has been this idea of using mathematical equations to describe a model of the natural world, and that's been something that's been ever since Galileo and Newton. It's been a pretty successful idea that's allowed us to make all kinds of progress uh, in studying um, uh, the the uh, orbits of planets and all kinds of things in physics and elsewhere. But it's also clear that it hasn't given us the whole story, that there's lots of things in nature that are not well explained, well understood, well, well predicted, and so on, by pure mathematical equations. So the question that I started thinking about about 30 years ago now was a was, uh, question of, so if mathematical equations aren't the whole story, what else could we do? So if one is going to have a model for, for a system, it better be the case that that system operates according to some definite kind of underlying rules. The question is, what is the raw material that one should use to build up those rules? Is it, for example, the things that we have from mathematics, you know, multiplication, addition, uh, exponentiation, derivatives, integrals, things like that? Or could it be something more general? And so the, the key idea that I had was, perhaps it can be something more general, and the sort of place where one gets those more general things is from computers and computation and computer programs and so on. The question was, can one make a program, something like a Turing machine program, that will describe what happens in a system in nature, rather than making a mathematical equation to do that kind of thing? So, um, the, uh, uh, so that got me started in the question of, OK, if that's going to be the case, if there's going to be a program that represents some system in nature, what might that program be like? Well, the programs we're used to dealing with are these long, complicated programs that we write out of uh, thousands, millions of lines of computer code for very specific purposes that we want to achieve. And it's not very plausible that nature has this uh, million-line program that describes how, how some simple system uh, works. The question is, what, um, 
but then there's sort of a basic science question, which is if we think about all the possible programs that we could imagine writing, we could ask the question, what do the simple programs out there actually do? Imagine sort of this computational universe of possible programs and just start asking, what do these programs typically do? Well, I started off looking at a very simple set of programs that uh, are called cellular automata, um, and this is a, a typical example of one of these cellular automata. It just has a, a line of cells. Each one is either black or white. And at every step, uh, the color of each cell is determined by the color of the cell above it and to its left and right. Um, so in this particular case, we start off with one black cell. We get some very simple behavior. We can keep going and uh, see what happens here. Uh, we can represent the rule that's being used by that icon down at the bottom that says, for every uh, cell and its left and right neighbors, what should the color of the cell underneath be on the next step? And we start off with a, with a black cell at the top, and we just get this very simple pattern. So the question is, well, what happens with other possible rules? So we can go on, we can change a bit in the rule. We find out that instead of getting a uniform black pattern, we get this checkerboard pattern. Maybe we change another bit in the rule. Here we get a slightly more complicated pattern. We can continue that for a while longer, and we find out that that pattern, it's very intricate, but ultimately, it's a very regular nested fractal pattern. Well, at this point, we might imagine that there will be some general principle that if the rule is simple enough and the way it starts, the initial conditions are simple enough, then it must necessarily be the case that the pattern of behavior that we get is somehow correspondingly simple. But the thing that I realized a long time ago is that it's, it's easy to just do an experiment to find out if that's true or not. And uh, so sort of pointing my... Uh, sort of pre-Mathematica at that time, uh, computational telescope into this sort of computational universe of possible programs. Uh, this is more or less what I saw. So this is the first 64 possible programs of this type that I, that I described. Each one, uh, each, each one of these is a different underlying rule. All of them are just starting from one black cell. And there are all sorts of weird creatures in this kind of computational universe that we see. A lot of them are very trivial. They just, you know, the black cell just stays the same and just goes down the page, or it slides to one side or the other. It makes little stripes, things like that. Uh, but if you look at this set of pictures, the most interesting one you see first is this one, rule 30. So what does that look like? Well, let's keep running that a little longer. Here's what we, here's what we get. So we're starting off from just one black cell. We're using that rule at the bottom there. Get this kind of pattern. So when I first started working these kinds of things out, my assumption was that if you keep running it long enough, it will somehow resolve into something simple, or at least there'd be some fancy method for mathematics or statistics or cryptanalysis or something which would allow us to look at the pattern that we see here and recognize that actually that pattern came from some simple origin down here and essentially be able to crack the behavior of this particular system. Well, you keep on running it a while longer, you get a pattern like this, and over on the left you can see there's a certain amount of regularity that, that exists. But overall, this pattern looks surprisingly random. And uh, through lots of efforts of mine and many other people's, uh, the, the many features of this pattern are, have never been cracked. So for example, if you look at the center column of black and white cells here, uh, it seems to be, for all practical purposes, completely random. It's random enough in practice that we used it for a long time as a pseudo-random generator in, in Mathematica. Um, and, uh, it's been a very successful pseudorandom generator. It's sometimes also used as, a, as a, uh, a stream cipher for cryptography. So it's pretty weird that you can just go out into this computational universe of possible programs, and rule number 30 is something that is as complicated as this. 
Um, it's something that's very much against our normal intuition that something like this should happen because you know normal intuition is if we're doing engineering or something, we want to make something complicated like this. We have to go to lots of effort to do that. But here it sort of seems effortless. This rule number 30 in this computational universe just happens to produce something like this. Um, it's uh, similarly, if we were to find a, a, a pattern like this in nature, we'd probably assume that that pattern had to be produced in some very elaborate way as the result of some long, you know, elaborate process of natural selection and evolution or some other very elaborate thing. But, but again, uh, we now can see that that's not the case, that in this computational universe of possible programs, uh, things like this actually occur rather often. Well, I actually think that the, this, this fact uh, is, is indicative of something pretty important about natural science. See, it seems like nature has some kind of secret that lets it make complicated stuff very easily. But we don't have that secret when we make technology and we do engineering. And so that means that typically, you know, if you're shown two objects, one's an artifact, one's a natural system, it's still a really good heuristic that the one that looks more complicated is the one that's the natural system because it seems like we don't have the secret that nature has that lets it make the complicated stuff that it makes. Well, I think this, this Rule 30 uh, cellular automaton is kind of an indication of what that secret of nature actually is. See, when we make things with engineering, we typically always want to foresee the results of what our engineering processes do. And so we tend to avoid, uh, we've sort of constructed our processes of engineering to avoid systems like this. But nature is under no such constraint. So it can just sort of go out into the computational universe, sample possible programs almost at random, and often find things like this. Well, so you can go and look at this computational universe of possible programs. You find all sorts of lovely stuff out there. Um, it's easy to find such things. Again, just, this is just starting off from one cell at the top and just evolving with some simple rule. And it looks like a kind of very organic thing that's going on here. Uh, this, is, this is common stuff to find. Well, a thing that uh, I got interested in is, okay, is this something special to cellular automata? Is this some feature of uh, the way that cellular automata work with all their different cells and doing parallel computation and all those kinds of things? Um, the, uh, um, uh, it's, um, uh, or is it something that is a sort of more robust general phenomenon? Well, so I started looking at that, um, actually, after Mathematica came into existence. Um, and one of the first uh, sort of things to look at uh, was uh, Turing machines. So Turing machines are different from cellular automata because Turing machines have just one head that walks back and forth uh, being the place where the, the, the colors of cells get updated. Cellular automata work in parallel where all cells get updated at the same time. But so this is a typical Turing machine. This one is a, a three-state, two-color Turing machine. Starts off from a blank tape up there, and its head walks backwards and forwards, and it makes this kind of stripy pattern here. Well, so the question is, are there Turing machines that do complicated things like cellular automata? Well, you look at the first uh, 4,096 Turing machines that have just two states and two colors, um, and actually nothing too exciting happens. The most interesting one is this one over on the right here, which is, uh, operates like a binary counter. Um, so it's, it's uh, sort of counting up in binary. Well, you don't actually have to go much further in... Um, uh, um, in um, um, uh, in the space of Turing machines before uh, you start finding things that are actually very much like um, what you see in cellular automata. So here's an example of one that is uh, uh, a um, 
three-color two-state Turing machine, and the thing on the left is, the, uh, is just the raw evolution of the Turing machine. The thing on the right is kind of a summarized version of that evolution, where one's only showing those rows of the Turing machine where the head got further to the left or right than it's ever been before. Well, it's pretty clear from that right-hand picture that actually there's considerable similarity between what happens in this Turing machine and what happens in a cellular automaton. Okay, so that's kind of interesting. Um, so how, how general really is this phenomenon? We, we can see it happens in, in cellular automata, it happens in Turing machines. If you're an enthusiast of register machines, it happens in register machines as well. If you're an enthusiast even of traditional kind of mathematical equations, it turns out it happens there too. So like his, uh, here are some partial differential equations, sort of the, the central uh, things that get used in mathematical physics to model systems in nature, and the, and the kind of thing that actually Alan Turing used when he decided to look at morphogenesis in, um, uh, in biological systems. It's kind of always been slightly weird to me that Alan Turing didn't think about using Turing machine-like or cellular automaton-like systems uh, when he studied morphogenesis. In fact, I found many, many, many years later that, that uh, you can, uh, that in fact, permutation patterns are, are modeled in a rather wonderful way by cellular automata. We can talk about that in a minute. But in any case, even if you look at that sort of bastion of, of mathematical physics, partial differential equations, these are some typical partial differential equations that you'll find in textbooks of, of, of mathematical physics. But if you just say, let's just search the space of possible partial differential equations, just like we search the space of possible cellular automata or possible Turing machines and see what's out there, it doesn't take long before you find things like this. These are kind of nonlinear equations that have the feature that you start them off from just some simple initial condition, and they pretty soon produce this very elaborate behavior. Now, the, the reason things like this were not well discovered in partial differential equations, for example, is it's really hard to know if these are the right answer because partial differential equations are not well mapped onto standard digital computers. In order to solve these things on a digital computer, you have to make all sorts of numerical analysis approximations. Um, and actually, uh, you have to sort of turn this continuous system into a discrete thing that can be mapped onto a, onto a digital computer. It, it's always been a great test for numerical differential equation solving in Mathematica to see whether, how far we can take these particular equations. But the point is that you can't really be sure that the complication that you're seeing in the behavior of these equations is a feature of the equations themselves or whether it's just some sort of pathology of the numerical analysis scheme that you're using. Well, that's a di it's a different situation in something like the Rule 30 cellular automaton, because in the Rule 30 cellular automaton, the bits are the bits. There's no ambiguity. There's no approximation going on. It's just a deterministic system. It follows that rule at the bottom, and it makes this whole pattern of behavior. Once you've seen that in Rule 30, you can go back and realize that actually it happens in partial differential equations and things too. So, okay, so it's a fairly robust phenomenon that uh, you can get this sort of very complex behavior even from very simple underlying rules. There's a question of how that relates to what we actually see in nature, and you can look at you know, something like a snowflake pattern, um, and you can realize that actually the, uh, the origin of that, um, uh, that behavior um, is something that can be rather well modeled with even a very simple program, simple cellular automaton. There's a simple two-dimensional cellular automaton. These are the successive steps in its evolution um, that does a really rather good job at modeling many details of what happens in something like a snowflake. And you can go on and look at things that have been sort of mysterious features of, uh, in terms of um, uh, traditional physics, for example, like the randomness of fluid turbulence, and you can understand something about sort of what the origins of the randomness that occur in things like fluid turbulence are. You can even go on and, and look at something that's uh, sort of uh, closer to the Turing beat, 
Um, you can look at biological systems and growth processes in biological systems, and you can ask the question, how complicated, how simple can the programs be that produce these kind of biological growth processes? When Turing looked at this, he looked at it in terms of partial differential equations. He could perfectly well have looked at it in terms of Turing machines, and he would have found all kinds of interesting things, I think. Um, and what you discover is that, oh, I don't know, if you're looking at, for example, uh, leaf shapes, um, you discover that there's some very simple models um, that uh, 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 can reproduce sort of the diversity of shapes that you get there. If you look at, for example, another one, one of my favorites is uh, mollusk shells, um, where it's actually a pigmentation pattern question, a little bit like Turing's cow pigmentation pattern, um, where now uh, one of the sort of mysteries is that different, um, the pigmentation patterns of different shells are quite different. And uh, if you look at, um, you can make a, a shells grow in this very nice one-dimensional way where they have just sort of a growing lip, one-dimensional growing lip where they put down shell and pigment on the shell. And you can ask, well, what happens if shells just sort of randomly pick possible rules for the row of cells that, that are on that growing lip? Well, then you would end up with different species of mollusks having patterns of behavior that correspond to different possible cellular automata, and you would see patterns that correspond to things like this. And, and you see here that there are little striped patterns and there are spotted patterns and so on. And then there are those weird triangle sort of tent-like patterns. Well, if you actually go and look at the natural world of mollusk shells, you find stripes and spots. And bizarrely, you also find these tent-like patterns. It's just the same kind of thing that you see um, in this space of possible systems in the computational universe. So what seems to be the case is that uh, what we're seeing in, in mollusk shells is sort of almost a random selection of different possible programs from this computational universe, and then the shells are essentially running these programs, and we get to see the results printed out on the shells. Well, you can, you can go and look at other, many other kinds of systems and discover that uh, this idea that there are simple programs that underlie uh, behavior of systems in nature um, is, is uh, something that uh, happens all the time and is, is rather a powerful uh, feature of, of uh, modeling in, in the natural world. But then you can go back and ask sort of a more fundamental question. Okay, we, we see this Rule 30 phenomenon. Why does this happen? What's really going on here? And so what I come up with is a, is a thing I call the principle of computational equivalence, which in a sense is a generalization of Turing's ideas about universal computation. And essentially it works like this. So if we look at different possible systems, uh, we can say that every one of these systems, where every one of these different, for example, cellular automaton rules, is performing some kind of computation. And the question is, but the question is, how sophisticated is that computation? I mean, some of these things, the computation is pretty trivial. It's just leaving the input unchanged. Other ones, it's doing some, uh, some other uh, fairly simple computation. The question is, how sophisticated is the computation that these different, uh, uh, if we fed them different initial conditions, they would uh, sort of run and produce some output. How sophisticated is the computation that's being done that goes from the input to the output? Well, uh, this principle of computational equivalence, well, you, you might think that as you make the rules for the underlying systems more complicated, that somehow the sophistication of computations that they do would somehow progressively increase as the rules for the underlying system get more complicated. What the principle of computational equivalence says is that that's not the case. That as soon as you're above systems whose behavior is obviously trivial, then you, you get beyond a threshold at which the behavior, the, the, the computations that the systems perform are effectively always of equivalent sophistication. So it's not the case that above this threshold, 
you're just flatlined. It doesn't, as you increase the complexity of the rules, you can't go on increasing the sophistication of the computations. The computations are already of maximal sophistication. Okay, so uh, this is sort of a, a um, uh, something that originally I came to for sort of empirical reasons. Um, one can ask, well, okay, so how would one get evidence for this particular hypothesis? So one prediction of this principle of computational equivalence is that it should be the case that any one of these systems that uh, is not obviously simple should be capable of, of uh, computations that are as sophisticated as anything. In particular, it should be capable of universal computation. Um, that's, it should be capable of more than that, but among other things, it should be the case that there exists some initial condition that can be set up that will make this system emulate any other computational system. In other words, this should be something that is generally programmable. Well, so is this actually true? Well, we begin to get a little bit of evidence about it. So, for example, this is um, one of these cellular automata. This one is Rule 110, um, and it's started here from a random initial condition. And uh, we see it has all these various structures running around. And you might imagine that these structures might be doing some kind of computation. Well, with much effort, one can show that, yes, indeed, that is the case. Um, in fact, this particular cellular automaton, Rule 110, is computation universal. Um, so of the 256 very simplest possible cellular automata, at least four of them we know so far are computation universal. Probably Rule 30 is computation universal, but we don't know that for sure yet. I'm, I'm pretty sure it is, but it hasn't been proved yet. Well, so it's sort of a remarkable thing that in this space of, in this computational universe of possible systems, we already know that some pretty near, pretty low-lying systems, pretty simple systems are computation universal. You can ask the same thing in Turing machines. What's the simplest possible uh, universal Turing machine? Well, uh, when Turing set up his first universal Turing machine, it's a big, complicated, hacky thing. Uh, over the years, people found slightly simpler universal Turing machines. Um, but there's a question, what's the very simplest possible one? Well, we know that there is no Turing machine that um, uh, with two states and two colors that can be computation universal, I showed before. This is sort of the, uh, pretty much the, the spectrum of different behaviors there, and you can, you can show that none of these can be computation universal. They're all kind of showing fairly trivial behavior. If you go and start looking at sort of the next level of Turing machines with three colors and two states, for example, uh, I showed before this one that you get to. So then the question is, is this particular thing universal or not? Uh, nothing simpler than it, everything simpler than it we know isn't universal. So this would be sort of the first possibility for a universal Turing machine. And this principle of computational equivalence of mine says that actually this should be universal. That would be good evidence. If it is universal, it's good evidence for this principle of computational equivalence. If it isn't universal, it's kind of embarrassing for the principle of computational equivalence. So it's kind of a place where, even in this very formal system, we get to do something a little bit like natural science, where we're trying to find evidence for things in this kind of way. Well, a few years ago, I decided what, what's the best way to figure out if this is universal. I decided I would put up a prize uh, for somebody to prove or disprove that this is computation universal. And I actually thought this prize might be out for 100 years, not being figured out whether it is or isn't universal. Um, to my considerable pleasure, after a limited number of months, I, a chap um, from Birmingham, young fellow from D Birmingham, uh, announced that, yes, in fact, he'd, he'd solved this, and indeed, it was computation universal. So that was, um, that was pretty neat. Uh, among other things, this is the simplest universal Turing machine. That can be no simpler, and this one is universal. 
So that's kind of nice to know that, you know, Turing started off in 1936 with a pretty complicated universal Turing machine. We've now got it down to this is the simplest one that can exist. Um, it's also pretty interesting because it gives us a good piece of evidence for this principle of computational equivalence. Um, that, uh, again, in the space of Turing machines, once one's got to ones which aren't obviously simple, um, one sees this, uh, uh, this kind of, uh, one, one sees computation universality. Well, okay, so if we believe this principle of computational equivalence, what other implications does it have? So another, another one of its implications is a thing I call computational irreducibility, which is kind of a, a, uh, um, a lower-level version of the kind of undecidability of the halting problem and so on that Turing looked at. So the question is, if, you're gonna, if you have a, a, a system like this, for example, and you say, well, what's it going to do after 10,000 steps? Well, in the sort of traditional kind of uh, uh, mathematical science approach to, to things, the big thing you want is to be able to predict stuff. You know, if you have a, an idealized planet going around, an idealized star, um, you don't want to have to trace sort of a million orbits to find out where the planet will be. You just want to fill in the number of million and have look up at a formula what the, what the result will be. Um, that's a case where one's effectively, by being smarter than the planet in some sense, one's able to computationally reduce the amount of effort that it takes to work out where the planet will be. So the question is, for a system like this, is there computational reducibility or is this something different? Well, what this principle of computational equivalence implies is that there will be computational irreducibility. In other words, that to work out what happens after some large number of steps here, really the most efficient way to do that is just to follow the actual evolution of the system and see what it does. So that's something where it's saying that you know, when one studies systems, it's uh, ultimately necessary to simulate their behavior. One can't expect to have sort of a, a simple formula that just gives one the result. Lots of implications of computational irreducibility uh, about, um, oh, there are implications about free will versus determinism. There are implications about uh, uh, practical issues about simulation. There are implications about undecidability and how ubiquitous it is and so on. Um, but that's just another feature. And another thing to realize is that this principle of computational equivalence is supposed to apply to every kind of thing, whether it's a simple cellular automaton or whether it's a brain or something like that. And there's sort of an idealization that gets made typically in science, which is, you know, our brains are definitely a lot smarter than the systems we're studying in nature. That's the usual assumption. But the principle of computational equivalence says that shouldn't ultimately be true. And it, that's sort of the fundamental reason that something like this can look complicated to us. Because if we, with our brains, were always able to sort of outrun and outpredict and outcompute what this system was doing, we'd be able to recognize that there was sort of a simplicity to what was going on here. But the fact that this system is sort of equivalent in its computational sophistication to our brains is why it necessarily looks to us complex. Well, there are all kinds of things one can think about about this. I, I'll mention um, one implication of these kinds of things is the question about our universe, for example. Uh, we can now see that from this rather simple rule, we get this rather complicated behavior. So the question is, what about our whole universe? Could it be the case that our whole universe actually grows from something that is ultimately a very simple rule? Well, we know that our universe, so the question then is, okay, we've got our universe, it does all the things it does. If it's represented by some program, how long is that program? Is it four lines long? Is it a million lines long? Is it a quintillion lines long? You know, how big is the program? Well, we know it's not incredibly big, because we have some evidence it's not incredibly big, because there are actually definite laws for the universe. You know, it could be the case that every particle in the universe just does its own thing and has to be represented by a different case in the program. 
That isn't what happens. And that's, you know, that's a fact that, for example, theologians long time ago realized this, uh, this important point about the universe, that there is order in the universe. They had their implications for, for that. But today, the implication is the program for the universe can't be as complicated as it might be. Um, so then the question is, well, how simple is it? And so then the question is, if we look in this computational universe of possible programs, where does the one for our universe actually lie? Is it one that is sort of at a low enough serial number that we might find it just by searching through possible programs in the computational universe? Or is that absolutely hopeless? Should we do sort of reverse engineering of the actual universe to find it? Well, the, um, uh, it's, um, there are lots of things that's sort of a long story, how one can start thinking about physics in terms of simple programs. But one of the features of, of the physical universe being represented by a simple program is that if you're going to pack all that information about the universe into a tiny program, almost nothing about the universe that is familiar to us today will be visible in that program. So what's in that program will be sort of underneath space and time and so on. Um, it will be something that, is, uh, uh, that has all those things sort of packaged together in some complicated way. And there won't be any place where you can see in that program the number three representing the number of dimensions of space or something like this. Well, I think there are a bunch of different ways one can represent sort of the, the underlying structure of such a program. A convenient one is to think about it as some kind of network of nodes where every node is just a, um, uh, it's all one knows is the connectivity of nodes. One doesn't know how many dimensions the thing is in. It's just this big ball of network. And, uh, you know, you can assemble networks into things which uh, in the large scale will be like one-dimensional networks, two-dimensional networks, three-dimensional networks, whatever. Um, but uh, in general, one could just say, well, the universe might be like a network. I, something I realized recently that I think is kind of fun is if you think about the history of physics, um, one of the things that was an important step was the realization that Euclid's uh, axioms um, did not necessarily govern the physical world. And the particular one was Euclid's fifth postulate that said that two parallel lines will never meet. It was realized by, uh, well, eventually by Einstein and friends that um, that might not be true for physical space. Um, and that's what led to general relativity and gravitation theory and so on. So the realization that sort of Euclidean axioms for, for things might not be valid for the physical world um, had an important implication. What I realized recently, if you read Euclid, the first line of Euclid is uh, a point is that which has no part. Well, I suspect that that, that idea is wrong and that, that, um, uh, and that um, the... Um, uh, because what's going on, if, if this is what space is like at an underlying level, it's like saying, well, you know, you've got a fluid like water and it behaves continuously, but at an underlying level, it's a bunch of molecules bouncing around. That's sort of how space would work. And that means that there is no notion of an indivisible point. Um, there's sort of uh, uh, structure um, uh, of, of this kind that lies underneath kind of the, the usual notions of physical space. Well, okay, so you can go and actually start um, uh, enumerating possible... Um, uh, possible universes, and there's lots of technical detail about what's going on, but, but um, uh, basically the idea is you just enumerate possible rules for how these networks might get updated, and you ask yourself, are any of these things like our universe? Well, a lot of them are obviously not like our universe. They have no notion of time. Space is bizarrely, infinitely exponential, and obviously not like our physical space. But it doesn't take that much time before you start finding ones where actually they're not obviously not our universe. One is completely bitten by computational irreducibility because as you start running these things, you run for a billion steps, it's flapping around inside your computer, and it's very hard to tell whether what it's doing corresponds to the actual laws that we know from physics or not. 
And clearly we can't get to run these model universes for as long as our physical universe has been running because that's, that's not something we could practically do in our computer. Um, so you have to kind of hope for little pockets of reducibility in this kind of sea of computational irreducibility. Actually, I've made quite a bit of progress on these kinds of things, but, um, uh, and in fact, turns out you can derive special relativity, which is kind of non-trivial because in usual physics, that's something which is put in from the beginning. You can even derive uh, many features of gravitation and general relativity from these kinds of systems. And you can start to see how various features of quantum mechanics arise. Um, so it's kind of interesting, and it's, you know, the big challenge is, could our, uh, could our computational, could our physical universe actually be a simple program that's out there in the computational universe? In effect, could our universe be something like a Turing machine? Um, I mean, this particular construction of these things isn't, uh, you know, on the surface like a Turing machine, but this is, this to show that uh, such a thing would reproduce our universe, it also implies that any universal machine could in principle release, reproduce our universe. There are all kinds of interesting questions, you know, if we find that our universe is number 50,000, number 3,000, number 200 or something, in the space of all possible universes, that's a sort of an interesting Copernican moment because we kind of think that uh, from you know, post-Copernicus, we kind of assume there's nothing special about us, that we can't be a special uh, sort of uh, central, you know, at a central place in the universe or anything like that. Yet in this computational universe of possible universes, if we could find our universe by just doing the search like this, it would imply that we were sort of at a low number in the computational universe. Anyway, the, uh, so, so this idea of uh, simple programs and what they do and so on um, has, has all sorts of implications. Um, it actually has some really practical ones as well, um, which, uh, uh, which, which kind of uh, are perhaps interesting to talk about. I mean, the, the one place where you can use something like uh, one of these cellular automata, for example, is to say, well, let's, make, let's use these as raw material to make models for things in nature. Um, but another thing you can do is to say, well, let's see if we can use these things to make technology. And you know, what is technology? Technology is typically taking uh, what exists in the world and harnessing it somehow for human purposes. So a typical thing that we've done with materials, physical materials, is to say, let's go see what we find out there. We find magnets. We find liquid crystals. We find uh, electro-optic uh, uh, substances, things like this. Each one of these, we then realize at some point, well, liquid crystals can be used for computer displays, for example. We're essentially mining what exists in the natural world and harnessing it for particular human technological purposes. Well, we can do exactly the same thing in the computational universe. And um, the, uh, uh, what happens there um, is, is that, um, for example, I mentioned that rule 30 is a good pseudorandom number generator. Um, you can uh, go and look in the computational universe for things which are good things for doing certain kinds of image processing, or good things for doing fast function evaluation, or good things for doing uh, network routing, all kinds of different things. And it's different from the usual practice of engineering, where you say, I've got an objective and I'm going to step-by-step build a program to achieve that objective. This is something where you're just saying, I've got this objective, now just go out into the comp computational universe and find something that satisfies that objective. Um, seems kind of crazy if it wasn't for the fact that you don't have to go very far in the computational universe before you get really very sophisticated behavior happening, that would just be a crazy thing to do. It's kind of interesting to see um, in, in a lot of domains, you can kind of ask the question, where does the interesting stuff start to happen in the computational universe? So one, one example of that that um, one can look at is, for example, mathematics. So, you know, mathematics, 
There are axioms for mathematics. This is pretty much the axiom systems for all of mathematics that's practiced today. Uh, from these axiom systems, the three million theorems that are in the literature of mathematics have been, have been proved. But you can ask the question, if you just look at all possible axiom systems, um, what, uh, you know, where do the interesting ones start happening? And this is kind of a, a, an idealized version of mathematics um, where possible axiom systems run down the page, possible theorems run across the page, and for every time there's a theorem that's true for a particular axiom system, there's a black dot. So the question is, where do sort of popular fields of mathematics actually lie in the space of possible mathematics, so to speak? Well, an interesting um, one case of that is, for example, Boolean algebra, logic. And you look at a logic book, you find that um, there are uh, typical axiom systems, the ones written over there on the left. Um, it's been known for 100 years that you can not have to use AND and OR and NOT. You can just use the NAND operator. That's how all computers work um, to represent all logical operations. Um, but then you can ask the question, well, in the space of possible axiom systems, what's the very simplest axiom system that corresponds to Boolean algebra, to logic? And it turns out it's this one here, which I found about 15 years ago now. Um, and uh, it's about the 50,000th axiom system that you find just searching through the space of all possible axiom systems. And you can, um, uh, you can prove that. You know, actually, in Mathematica today, it takes a few seconds to prove it. That's, the, that's a version of the proof written out. Um, that's an automatically generated proof of no great use to humans. Um, but, uh, the, um, but it kind of establishes that it's true. But um, so that's a, that's a case where we're sort of searching the space of possible mathematics to find ones that are useful, for example, for logic. Um, and that you know, we find the axiom system for logic. But you can do this in, in great generality. And I think you know, one of the things we've realized is that computation, um, you know, the idea of computation as, a, as an engineering matter um, is something that has grown up over the last 50 years or so. Um, but that's only the beginning. Uh, you know, there's more to computation than what you can build with engineering. Um, and so what, what's happened so far is that we've, um, we've, seen, uh, we've seen this question of uh, you know, following the Turing machine and so on. We've seen this idea that you can program you know, arbitrary, you can program universal hardware to do all kinds of things, but you have to go to all this effort to do that programming. There's actually a whole other level of possibility, which is to just say there's this computational universe that is, that is revealed to us um, by these computational systems. And in that computational universe, there are all kinds of things that are useful that we can just go out and mine for ourselves. And my guess is that in the next 50 years, um, by the end of that time, vastly more technology will be produced by, um, uh, by this methodology of essentially algorithm discovery in the computational universe than is produced by all other uh, methods of, of, uh, of engineering development put together. And we can see all kinds of, we, we in, in our own sort of software development methodology, we've, uh, we've very much incorporated this. You can see it in lots of other places. You can see it in some artistic kinds of um, places. We had a project a number of years ago that uh, exists on the web of, uh, where we generate musical forms um, using by just sort of mining the computational universe of cellular automata uh, for, um, for things which uh, satisfy the criteria of certain kinds of musical styles. And it's turned out to be a rather popular website. Actually, bizarrely enough, among composers, who are interested in finding sort of inspiration from this computational universe. One might have thought that the part the humans would be involved with is the inspiration part, and the computer would be embellishing it. But actually, it seems to be the other way around. 
And it's sort of an interesting, it's actually kind of a Turing test type thing for, for music um, that uh, you can get these, these pieces that are a couple of minutes long and they sound pretty good and they sound uh, uh, just as good as, as what humans produce, at least up to that length scale. Um, well, so one of the things, so in this sort of computational universe of possible programs, um, uh, you know, what, what are the kinds of things that one can, can do there? Well, for me, an important um, uh, thing that came out of thinking about this computational universe was um, coming back to a project that I happen to have been interested in uh, since about the time I last um, saw Jonathan Bowen here, uh, which was uh, if you take um, sort of all this knowledge that exists in the world, how can you kind of organize it to make it computable? How can you set it up so that you can automatically uh, get answers to questions um, that uh, uh, could be answered on the basis of knowledge that our civilization has, has collected? And so um, I thought that the only way to build a sort of a, 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 a computational knowledge on that scale was to have something like an artificial intelligence, to have a brain-like thing where you'd have all the sort of uh, characteristics of a brain and you'd start educating it just like you educate uh, human brains and so on. And so I, for decades, I, I kind of assumed that the only way to make progress in this kind of computational knowledge idea was to solve the problem of AI. Well, when I did this work about the computational universe, I realized that just can't possibly be right. Um, that you know, one had imagined that there was some sort of bright line between that which is intelligent and that which is merely computational. And I think Turing already realized that there wasn't such a bright line. People had imagined a much brighter line before, before he started talking about artificial intelligence around 1950. But I think there's still, I at least had the point of view that there was some you know, major sort of progress in computation that would be needed to have something which was sort of intelligence-like that was beyond mere computation. But what this principle of computational equivalence shows us is that that better not be true. If, that, if the principle of computational equivalence is true, there really isn't a bright line distinction between that which is intelligent and that which is merely computational. And that's why, for example, when we start thinking about, you know, something about extraterrestrial intelligence, and we ask, you know, we get some sequence of, uh, of bits from the cosmos, so to speak, that corresponds to some output of some very complicated thing like Rule 30. Um, the, uh, you know, we ask ourselves, well, do we need the whole, you know, a whole giant civilization to have grown up to give us that sequence of bits? Or could it be the case that somehow some, you know, simple pulsar out there is kind of almost at random picking um, that kind of algorithm to, uh, to make its bits? Well, I think the, um, so anyway, I realize that sort of this notion of intelligence uh, shouldn't be merely, uh, you know, could be merely computational. Um, and uh, so that led me to actually think back on this idea that I'd thought about for 40 years or so about um, uh, kind of um, uh, 30 years at the time I started getting serious about it, but about um, uh, uh, computational knowledge and whether one could actually do something that was a little bit like what Turing imagined one might be able to do for, for artificial intelligence. In fact, Turing sort of talked about, you know, what if one could take Encyclopedia Britannica and feed it to a computer? And uh, you know, could one then uh, could one make something that was sort of intelligent and new things like humans do? Well, I decided about ten years ago to actually try and do that, um, and uh, the result of that um, uh, process is this um, thing called Wolfram Alpha, which um, well, that's not it. I'm not going to it. Um, uh, and so the, the the idea of Wolfram Alpha is to try and sort of do the. Um, uh, 
do the thing that one might have thought one needed artificial intelligence to do um, and to be able to just uh, uh, sort of answer questions that um, uh, answer sort of any question that um, um, one might um, uh, uh, that might be answerable by a human expert. So for example, you can say, you know, what's the integral of x cubed sine squared x? And you'll get the answer and you'll get, um, if it wakes up, you'll get all kinds of other interesting facts related to that particular integral. Um, and uh, it's sort of a, a um, the question is, how far can one go with this idea of computation? How far can one go in sort of um, getting, um, uh, um, um, in getting, um, in, in turning things into sort of pure computation? And uh, I'm afraid this network is really slow here, but, but um, uh, what's interesting is that one can sort of go beyond the merely, um, the sort of obviously uh, uh, mathematical, so to speak, and one can realize that just lots and lots of things out there are computational. And kind of the notion of, um, of this Wolfram Alpha system is to try and be able to understand um, whatever uh, kind of input one gives, um, whatever sort of thing tumbles out in terms of a sort of a human, uh, 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 sort of human thoughts that get translated into typing, um, and be able to um, uh, to work out what um, uh, to to compute things from that. So you know, you type in something like this, and hopefully, if it wakes up, it'll figure out that that's probably a genome sequence, and it'll probably go and figure out um, uh, the matches of that particular genome sequence on the human genome, and all those kinds of good things. And you can you can go. Um, uh, um, how about when will the sun set today? Let's see what it does if I ask that. Um, I don't know if they probably figure that out. I don't know. Okay. Okay. So there it tells us that, um, that time and it tells us uh, where the sun is right now from Oxford. It knows where we are from GOIP information. Um, and uh, so, okay. The, um, so it's three hours and five minutes the sun will set. Um, the, uh, you can ask it, you know. It's always fun to ask it the weather because that's a, uh, it's, it's nice when you have a computer program where you can look out of the window and see if it's doing something reasonable. Um, and that's telling us what's happening today and it'll probably give us some weather prediction and things in a moment. It just started raining outside? The, the, I don't know, it pre it's predicting the temperature's gonna go down a bit. Um, the, um, Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it says it says it's going to start raining right around right around now. <laughs> it's, um, uh, but in any case, it it, it um, uh, what um, so you know, Wolfram Alpha is a big project. Gets used in lots of places these days. Um, it's sort of the goal is to try and sort of take as much knowledge uh, as as there is out there and make it computational sort of achieve, in a sense, something about, uh, something similar to what Alan Turing uh, thought he was trying to achieve um, uh, when he talked about artificial intelligence, I think. Um, the, uh, and, and one can even start to talk to this, like if you have an iPhone 4S, there's this thing called Siri on it, uh, which is powered by Wolfram Alpha. And if you start asking it questions, then assuming that the Siri uh, system doesn't root your question to the wrong place, um, it will, and it will increasingly not do that. Um, the, uh, uh, it will wind up in Wolfram Alpha, and it will wind up um, being able to um, uh, get get questions answered through this. So you can ask, well, you know, is this um, how does this relate to things like Turing tests and so on? I mean, our goal has not particularly been to to make uh, a sort of human-like dialogue happen 
just as it's turned out that human-like dialogue is not actually what people want um, in many kinds of practical computational settings. I mean, when, when you go and uh, you know, buy tickets for something or something, it turns out that the, the visual presentation of what you can do is actually a lot more effective than the purely audio kind of uh, pure linguistic thing that you get from a human. Um, and uh, I think what, um, what we've realized is that, that um, for example, when Wolf Malford generates results, um, it gives this sort of report that's organized in this kind of visual way that turns out to be somewhat more effective than if you were just having a sort of Turing test, you know, talking back and forth to the, to the computer. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that we've learned from all, the, all that's happened in the computer industry over the last 50 years or so. Um, but uh, uh, the, the thing that's, that's perhaps interesting is that sort of this notion that we can take sort of knowledge of the kind that humans have and actually make it computational, make it so that uh, our goal is to make it so that if there's something that can be answered by a human expert on the basis of knowledge that exists in our civilization, that we should automatically be able to do it. Um, that's something that finally, uh, after all these years, is, is really becoming a very practical reality. And it's, it's kind of fun as we sort of crunch through different sort of domains of human knowledge um, to see how many of them uh, can really benefit from, uh, from computation and from the idea that you can, uh, uh, that you can uh, sort of use algorithms and compute things um, uh, about it. Well, I should probably uh, wrap up here. And I, I guess my, my main, um, uh, I think Turing, it's, it's really interesting to see what Turing did in his life. You know, he worked on a series of projects. Um, it's kind of bizarre how many of those projects I have ended up um, uh, uh, interacting with at one time or another. Uh, even I was amazed back in 1989, just after Mathematica had first come out, we wanted to make a sort of promotional poster of the zeta function, the Riemann zeta function. And so we had this thing that wiggles up and down, you know, as the Riemann zeta function does. And I was looking up, you know, who had computed these wiggles before. And it turns out uh, Turing had a, had a, um, uh, was, the, was, the, was the world, um, uh, was the record holder for a while. Uh, based on a whole design that he'd made with cogs and gears and things um, to essentially do harmonic analysis of the, of the zeta function. That was just one of, of many places where I've sort of ended up um, uh, leading a parallel life to, to, to Turing's. Um, of course, it's, um, and, I, and I'm quite convinced that, for example, the things that I found sort of in the computational universe of possible programs, um, I mean, Alan Turing didn't, I think, ever actually simulate a Turing machine, um, but uh, he probably would have done eventually. Um, and, uh, and I think he, uh, you know, the intuition of everybody, Turing, von Neumann, everybody, and even people like me, um, uh, was that this phenomenon that, um, that if you had a simple program, it should do something simple. That was the intuition. Um, and you can see that uh, I don't think Turing really addressed that issue. Von Neumann certainly addressed that issue and very much uh, came down on the side of if you want to make something complicated, it has to be really complicated. That's why he invented, when he was trying to do mathematical biology, he invented this immensely complicated thing to do self-reproduction, even though that's utterly unnecessary. But he didn't realize that it could be unnecessary because he just had this intuition that if you want to make something as complicated as that, you have to go to all this effort. But in any case, it's, it's um, so I suppose that my own... Um, uh, uh, view is that you know it's it's um, it's great that Alan Turing kind of seeded this whole direction of computation. Um, it's also you know he died five years before I was born, and that was uh, uh, for me that was a good deal because uh, that meant that um, I could get to discover all kinds of nifty things about the computational universe that probably would have been known 20 years earlier <laughs> if Alan Turing had uh, had uh, had lived longer. So the, anyway, that that's um, uh, so I should probably stop there. Thanks very much. <laughs>